0: Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this night and in whose name we pray, amen. I don't like to boast, but my son Ethan is shaping up to be a pretty excellent writer. He's in the fifth grade and his teacher tells us that he doesn't write like your typical fifth grader. He employs a wider vocabulary, more engaging syntax, and a personal voice that reflects his thoughts and feelings. It's apparent from reading the work that he's written that he has a strong command of the English language and a burgeoning appreciation for its nuances now again not to brag but I kind of like to think of myself as a a pretty decent writer too Um, you know it's one of the few tangible skills I possess being a good writer that's that's something you can really hang your hat on you know it's practical it's marketable everyone respects a good writer right What do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. I mean, I can't tell most folks that I'm a preacher, you know, much as I'd like to, not unless I want to get into a long and convoluted conversation about religion and politics. But a writer. Being able to write well is one of the few things that I take some real pride in. And so imagine my surprise when I found one of Ethan's school assignments on my desk one evening, a writing exercise that he had addressed to me personally, called, How to Be a Better Writer. (laughs) Dear Dad, the missive began, since you could use some help, I'm writing to share a few useful tips with you that will improve your writing. He goes on for about a page and a half, offering suggestions for better storytelling and more interesting sentence structure. He says that I should use spicy words, whatever that means, uh, to better engage readers. For instance, he writes, instead of saying it's cold outside, you might say it's as frigid as the icy wastelands of the frozen north. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. As I read through his insi- assignment, I had to admit I was rather impressed, despite the somewhat condescending tone of the piece. And I have to admit that my pride was a little bit wounded as I reached the end, and he concluded, perhaps you should use this advice when you write your next sermon. There's always room for improvement. I mean, imagine being uh, an accomplished musician. You know, imagine being Jeff Hager, right? Amazing piano player, and you get him piano for dummies as a Christmas present. <laughs> How would he feel? All in all, though, I have to say, I'm really proud of my son. He's already a much better writer than I was at his age, and that's what we want for our children, isn't it? We want them to surpass us, we want them to reach for greater heights than we could achieve, to inherit the lessons that we teach and embody them more fully than we ever could. And maybe if we can swallow our pride, they can teach us grown-ups a thing or two. Even at his birth, even in the manger, Jesus has valuable lessons to impart. Even then, as he would throughout his life, Jesus defied commonly held beliefs and assumptions before he ever even opened his mouth. First and foremost, the idea that the Messiah would be born in such poverty was completely unthinkable. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would be born with authority on his shoulders. That word authority, memshalah, in the original Hebrew, it implies political dominion. Some English translations use the word government, saying that Jesus would be born with the government on his shoulders. What does that mean to you? The assumption was that the Messiah would be born into a royal dynasty, inherit some degree of political authority, and that he would use it to establish his own temporal kingdom on earth. And while it's true that Jesus was born of the royal blood of David, that dynasty had ceased to be in power a long time ago. The Christ child was born with nothing. Hunted by the government, and ultimately died as an enemy of the state. The baby Jesus teaches us about a different kind of authority. And he teaches us a valuable lesson namely, that our assumptions, our beliefs about how the world works, our understanding of power, of privilege, is quite backwards. The last shall be first. The meek shall inherit the earth. Whoever dies for Jesus' sake will live. We repeat these verses, but do we really believe them? Any more than we believe our children when they tell us that they're afraid of monsters? As adults, we like to think we know better. We've got it all figured out. You'll understand when you're older, I often find myself telling my kids, as if I really understand anything. Recall the incident when little children were gathering around Jesus, trying to crawl on top of him and sit on his lap like he was Santa Claus, and the disciples try to shoo them along and send them home. But when Jesus saw this, he said to his friends, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Don't send them away. For it is such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. That story reminds me of the well-known book by Robert Fulgram, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. He describes simple truths. many of us adults seem to have forgotten share your toys play fair apologize if you do something wrong don't hit people take naps take any one of those items he advises and extrapolate it into sophisticated adult terms and apply it to your family life or your work or your governments or your world and it holds true and clear and firm. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about 3 o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankies for a nap. Or if all governments had as a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and to clean up their own mess. And it is still true, he writes, no matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it is best hold hands, and stick together. Sound advice. Indeed, there is much wisdom to be gleaned from children and the mouths of babes, and from the mouth of Jesus in particular, who taught us all we ever needed to know, even from a lowly manger. My boys often complain that things aren't fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. They'll scream and whine. They seem to think, each of them, that the other one benefits from some kind of favoritism. You know, that I'm, I'm playing favorites with the other brother, even though that's logically impossible. Because, you know, if I'm playing favorites with both of them, then I'm not really playing favorites at all. But rather than try to explain all of this, I often find myself simply replying, well, life isn't fair. How many parents throughout history have resorted to that disappointing platitude? How many of us have taught our kids to believe that? How many of our parents taught us the same? Life isn't fair. It's one of those assumptions Belief so deeply held that we don't bother to challenge it anymore. Not like we did when we were kids. A local professor named Stephen Asma wrote a whole book about why life isn't fair and why life will never be fair, and furthermore, why it shouldn't even be fair. The book is called Simply Against Fairness. And while he's one of my favorite authors, I have to really disagree with his premise this time. I mean, it makes sense on a practical level. He, he basically argues, right, that tribalism will always trump the common good, that people will always prioritize loved ones over strangers, and that favoritism, which leads to unfairness, is inevitable. And that is how it usually plays out in the world, but something inside me tells me that it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe it's my inner child talking, the one who's still complaining that life isn't fair instead of just blindly accepting it. Perhaps it's my inner child trying to impart the same lesson as Jesus, trying to shatter some long-held assumption. Maybe there's no room at the end. But there could be. Maybe life isn't fair, but if we listen to what the Christ child has to say, it could be a whole lot fairer than it is. We've all inherited a lot of assumptions about the way the world works. And you know what they say about people who assume things. I won't repeat it here. Let's say there were a few of them at the manger along with the goats and sheep. Now, maybe in our consumerist, profit-driven, hyper-individualistic, partisan, avaricious, violent, politically toxic, and completely unfair world, maybe our assumptions are a little off. Maybe we've gotten a few things backwards. Maybe we've gotten a lot of things backwards. Can we honestly look around at the society that we've built and claim that we know what we're doing? Can we really look our kids in the eye and tell them, you'll understand when you're older, with a straight face? Life's not fair, we tell our children and we tell ourselves, but maybe that's a big lie or at least a half truth. And maybe we ought to challenge that assumption. And that, above all, is the real lesson of Christmas. God come down as a child to tell us that another world, a fairer world, a better world, is possible. A world where people try to lift each other up instead of stepping on them to get ahead. A world where leaders actually care about people and the common good. A world where love is more precious than money. A world where there is always room at the inn. A Christmas that isn't about what's under the tree, but rather the act of sharing itself. Just like we learned in kindergarten, sharing is caring. It sounds a little cliché, but it's true. And I think our whole society and each of us would do well to remember it. Look. Our world will never be perfect, but as my son wrote in his writing assignment, there's always room for improvement, Dad. The only question is, are we prepared to take the advice of a child? Merry Christmas. Amen.